I'll invite you this morning to open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 9, where you came through chapter 8 last week, and we saw that chapter 8 outlined the first four of these seven trumpet judgments. And these four trumpets that we looked at in chapter 8 affected nature and some sorts of natural phenomena. So we'll go back through those real quick. The first trumpet judgment brought hail and fire mingled with blood. A third of the trees and the green grass was burnt up. The second trumpet, a third of the sea, that is the ocean, became blood. The third of the sea creatures died and a third of ships on the seas were destroyed. The third trumpet, this star called Wormwood, fell on a third of the freshwater supply making it bitter or poisoned, and many men died from drinking that water. The fourth trumpet, the sun, moon, and stars were struck so that a third of them were darkened. Then John saw an angel saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And this is why these last three trumpets, two of which we'll look at today, are collectively known as the woes, the three woes of Revelation, because of the announcement that this angel gave, and that's at the end of chapter 8. And we'll see this morning that all three of these judgments are worse than the preceding four judgments. They keep progressively ramping up in intensity. The first four trumpets afflicted nature, and the last three trumpets will focus more on mankind itself. So you have the first four affecting nature, the last three affecting mankind. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying if you're here this morning, you have just walked into a strange Bible study. So whether you've been with us for a while or you're just visiting, um, Revelation chapter 9 is regarded widely as one of the most difficult chapters in Revelation. So we'll be taking this on together. And truthfully, I don't think that it's that difficult if we just take it for what it says. Now, the difficulty comes when we try to make it into something that it's not. That's where we find difficulty. So we'll read through this text, and we'll go back through it and pick it apart a little bit, and we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. Because I know that it is no accident that we're all here this morning studying Revelation chapter 9. Let's read through the sounding of this fifth trumpet together. That's going to take us through verse 12. Then the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the green grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, 
but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek he has the same the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So let's come back up here to verse one. Then the fifth angel sounded. So this is chronologically right after the fourth trumpet, the fourth angel. And now this fifth angel is sounding his trumpet to bring about this judgment upon the earth. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, this star doesn't appear to be the same kind of star that we saw in chapter 8. There were two instances of stars falling from heaven onto the earth in chapter 8. But here in chapter 9, we see some personal pronouns used in reference to the star. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose. So this star is a personage. It's some sort of being. It's not a celestial body like we saw in chapter 8. Job 38, 7 talks about the morning stars, the angels of God, shouting for joy. Revelation 12 speaks of one-third of the stars, referring to angels, being led in rebellion by Satan. And back in Revelation 1, the seven stars we saw were the seven angels or messengers or pastors of the specific seven churches. And in each of those places, stars represent a personage. And this is not an exhaustive list of all the times that this occurs in scripture. Further, this star was given a key. You can't give a celestial body a key. That speaks to its personage. In fact, we still use a similar figure of speech to refer to people. A rock star, a movie star, you know, some sort of star. We still use this same kind of you know, rhetorical language. I also want to point out that this key to the bottomless pit was given to this being. He did not have the intrinsic authority to open this pit, but he was given that authority. Of course, he was given it 
by God. And earlier in Revelation, we saw that Jesus holds the keys of hell and death. Obviously, this key comes from Jesus himself. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. Now, what John is describing here is what he actually saw when this pit was opened. It's important to differentiate, especially in this chapter, the figurative language from the literal language. He is literally seeing smoke coming out of this pit, but he likens that smoke to the smoke that bellows out of a furnace. And so we have a literal language and figurative language to put this picture together for us. This bottomless pit is also called the abuso, the abyss. Um, And from this pit bellows smoke when it's opened. And so much smoke, in fact, that the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So you can imagine how much smoke it would take to actually visibly darken the atmosphere. And this isn't just one little puff of smoke and then it's, it's done. But this is some serious volume. It's enough to dim the light of the sun. And this really sets the mood for what's coming next. Um, as if these demonic locusts weren't enough. Now the atmosphere is smoky and dark and gloomy. You know, just all these little pieces add up to a a great day, right? Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. These locusts are the first of the three woes. And the first woe is synonymous with the fifth trumpet. So these last three line up as the three woes. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. So again, we see that these locusts don't have that power intrinsically, but it was given to them. And this is all interesting. And we'll see what all of this means towards the end. They were given this power. And these are not our standard locusts. And we'll see reasons why these can't be natural locusts as we move along. So I will strengthen you with this. You don't have to worry about waking up tomorrow and finding these guys in your backyard. Because there are a lot of things that have to happen before this can come to pass. A lot of things in the prophetic timeline. So don't be worried about that. But these guys are instructive to us um, in the whole picture of Revelation. Verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Well, isn't eating green things, the primary job of a locust? Isn't that kind of what they do? That's how they make their living, is eating green things. So why are these locusts 
not allowed to eat any green thing, why are they allowed to only torment people? What is all this coming to? These locusts have boundaries that have been set by the Almighty God. They're not allowed to touch vegetation, only men. But only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. This is what they are allowed to do. And this is also a reference to Ezekiel 9.6, which we've looked at previously, so I won't venture back there. But you can look for that reference to the mark in the forehead. Verse 5, And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. These locusts were given the authority only to torment, not to kill. And not all men, but only the men that did not possess the seal of God in their foreheads. And we know from chapter 7 that God's 144,000 sealed servants will have his mark on their foreheads. We know that this plague of locusts cannot harm those sealed by God. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now, apparently these locusts will sting like scorpions. And we'll see in a few verses that they had tails like scorpions. Out of curiosity, has anyone here been stung by a scorpion? Yes, several. It's very painful. But a lot of scorpion stings are not deadly. There's only a few species that are deadly. And I think it's interesting that these stings are compared to scorpion stings because scorpion stings are excruciatingly painful but not usually deadly. We see these locusts sting men. They torment them, but they don't kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. This sounds absolutely awful. Just awful. And I have trouble picturing this. You know, I don't have trouble picturing men seeking death. That's happened forever. But... I have trouble picturing men seeking death and not being able to find it. This is something that God has his hand on. You know, you fall on a sword, you stand up, and it's like the the bad pirates from Pirates of the Caribbean that have they turn into skeleton in the moonlight. You can pierce them. And they just keep walking around with the sword in them. I don't know what that's going to look like. But it's going to be a very supernatural kind of picture. People will actually try to die because of how painful this tormenting is. 
but God will not allow them to die for five months. That's the time span that all of this takes place in. Is this sick and twisted? Or is there something else at play here? And we'll look into that. John now begins to describe in verse 7 the appearance of these locusts. And he uses a lot of figurative language to give us this description. He says, The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. It's interesting that John chooses to describe these locusts like horses. Because the structure of the word locusts in both German and Italian point them to being horse-like. The German term for a locust is hupford. It means hay horse. And the Italian term is cavaletta, a little horse. And if anybody speaks German or Italian, I apologize for my pronunciation of those. But both of those languages take horse-type language and apply it to locusts. And when we're talking about locusts here, we're talking about what I grew up calling grasshoppers, not the cicadas with the round bodies that we used to tie on little strings and watch fly around. These are more like grasshoppers. And when you think of a grasshopper, you can kind of tell why they're described as being horse-like. You know, I picture them with like a long, slender face with eyes and little grabbers. I don't know what those are. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. He's not saying that there were crowns of gold on their head. He's saying that he saw something that resembled a crown of gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. Now, he doesn't say that they were a man's face, but it seems that they had features of something like men. And just to give you a little bit of insight into where my mind goes when I'm preparing for a message, when I read this, I thought of Dwight Schrute and his CPR training when he cuts off the face of the dummy and puts it on his face, something like the face of a man. And so there's where, where that goes. Anyways, <laughs> they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. So again, like women's hair and teeth like lion's teeth. And based on this description alone, these sound like something other than a natural locust a grasshopper. It sounds like these are literally demonic type entities that have come up from the pit of hell. That is what this description makes them sound like. And they had breastplates and like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They were very loud. There was a roar that accompanied them when they all flew together. And if you've been duck hunting, you've been sitting in a blind, you can usually hear the ducks coming from behind you before you see them fly over your head. 
because there's like this roar. It's like a jet plane almost with the, the ducks flying over your head. And I imagine that this sounds something like that, except ramped up. Because there's no telling how many of these things are coming. But the sound is like a roar. It's like chariots with many horses running into battle. The flapping of these wings. They had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. So again, they're being likened unto scorpions. And their power was to hurt men five months, not a day longer. Five months is the definite end time. This period of suffering is clearly marked out. And I'm fascinated and perplexed at the fact that this is the same duration as the flood of Noah, 150 days. That's five months. You can reference Genesis 7 for that. Surely there are overtones of judgment in both cases. But there's one big difference. During the flood, everything on the earth died. And during these five months, no men die. That struck me as important. I'll let you do the the application there. Verse 11, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. This is interesting. And this also tells us that they're not normal locusts. Proverbs 30, verse 27, says that the locusts have no king. And this is in reference to natural locusts. It says, um, Solomon is talking about how they fly together and the swarm sticks together, but it has no leader. They're just all kind of synced up. And he's marveling at the fact that this takes place. And he says, the locusts have no king. There's no one to lead them, but they still stick together. But these locusts in Revelation are led by a king. That should tip us off that these are something different. And I think that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know without a doubt that these are something different because he places that breadcrumb back in Proverbs for us to reach back and apply here. And I want you to look at this guy leading this swarm of locusts, as if it wasn't bad enough already. Their leader is named Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek. Both of these names mean destroyer. This is a destroyer. And he is the angel of the bottomless pit, the Abuso. This guy's bad news. And he's leading this demonic horde of locusts to torment men. You'll run into some commentators who interpret this horde of locusts as helicopters, you know, modern technology, modern weapon systems. And that's an interesting way to take it. And they may be right, but I don't think that you have to take it that way. I think that from a plain reading of this text, these are clearly 
demonically inspired entities, something of spiritual nature. Anyway, it could be helicopters or it could be some other kind of modern technology, but I certainly don't think that it has to be. This was only the first woe. Two more are getting ready to sound. And we'll only get through the second one this morning. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So now let's read verses 13 through 21. We'll get an idea of what's coming up in this sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So those last two verses, verse 20 and 21, are the context in which all of this is happening. Men are stubborn. All throughout the tribulation, but as you get towards the end, they get more and more stubborn. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So this sixth angel receives his orders from a voice that comes from the four horns of the altar. Presumably the same altar that the martyrs cried out from under. And this angel is commanded to release the four angels, apparently fallen angels because they're bound, the four angels who are bound at the Euphrates River. Now these are not the same four angels that we saw holding back the four winds of the earth in the beginning of chapter seven. These angels bound in the Euphrates river are fallen angels. There'd be no need to bind one of God's heavenly angels. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. They were prepared. There was 
intentionality behind one, their detainment, and two, their release. There was intentionality. And sure, it's jarring when you read that these angels killed a third of the living men, a third of the population wiped out, but they've also been prepared for this very assignment. There's a lot of calculation going into this. There's an overwhelming sense of control. Down to the specific hour that these angels would be released. Who triggers their release? And who orchestrated their sentence? Now the Euphrates River is the most important river in the Bible. It was the eastern boundary of Israel. We can look at Genesis 15, 18. We can cross-reference Deuteronomy 1, 7, Joshua 1, 4, and 1 Kings 4, 21, and 24. And these all talk about the Euphrates River, and they convey the significance of this river. Also, it was the traditional boundary between east and west. It divided the Roman Empire from the Parthian Empire. And this seems to be one of the most important landmarks in history. And throughout the Bible, we see very important events happening right around that area of the Euphrates River. That was where the Garden of Eden was, in that area. It, it says in Genesis that the Euphrates River marked one of the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. It also marks the boundary of Israel. We saw Nimrod come up from around there, build the Tower of Babel in the plains of Shinar. That's right in this area. By the way, Nimrod and Babel instituted idolatry. That is where all idolatry sprung out of. So this is a very important place, and it's very important to all of history, and especially the fall of man and the introduction of idolatry. This is where these four angels are bound. And it's somewhat surprising to us to realize that these spirit beings, you know, angels and demons and such, tend to be territorial. We think of spirit beings as being able to go anywhere or be anywhere. And to a certain extent, that's true. But we get glimpses into their territorial tendencies in places like Daniel 10 and some other places. And in this case, these fallen angels are bound at this physical landmark on earth. That's interesting. They're bound at the Euphrates River. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now there is some debate as to whether this number should be taken literally or figuratively. Now, obviously, John didn't sit there and count 200 million horsemen. But he said that he heard the number. There would be no need for him to sit there and count. He heard 
the number of them. So I would lean more towards taking this number literally. If it is literal, this is a massive, massive army. And just for reference, the German army during World War II reached 11 million soldiers. This army is made up of 200 million soldiers. And if it's figurative, it's even more impressive because this would be denoting a number that you couldn't count. It would be innumerable. So literal is impressive, but figurative may actually be even more impressive. It is interesting that in 1965, Red China claimed that they could field an army of 200 million men. And they chose that number specifically to tout their military capabilities. And when this came out in Time magazine on May 21st of 1965, people freaked out. And they thought that this claim from Red China was lining up with Bible prophecy. But if they were paying attention to the timeline, they wouldn't have been so flustered by this. And speaking of this, just in the past several weeks, there's been quite a buzz surrounding the drying up of the Euphrates River. And I don't know if y'all have seen that, but I've had some interesting videos come my way, articles, things of that such, talking about the drying up of the Euphrates being a fulfillment of Bible prophecy that we're witnessing today. In short, I don't think that's the case. Now, I'm not trying to to play down um, the buzz around it because I think it's good that people are looking at the Bible and it's drawing attention to Revelation. But if we look at this prophecy that is ahead in our study in Revelation 16, verse 12. I'll read that real quick. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So that's where all of this thought comes from. This is the sixth bowl judgment which is poured out sometime in the second half of the tribulation. And when we know that, we know that there's a lot coming before then. So we are not witnessing the fulfillment of Revelation 16, 12 today. Now, it is interesting, maybe even significant, that the Euphrates River is drying up, but it is not a fulfillment of this specific prophecy. Now, There's plenty of prophecies that are being fulfilled. So don't take this to mean that nothing is being done right now. Uh, Things are starting to move quickly and things are starting to progress. But I hope that by this point in our study of Revelation that you have some sort of awareness of the timeline that we're dealing with here um, and that you're equipped to answer questions like this when people come to you. So the answer is no, we're not witnessing the drying up of the Euphrates as referenced in Revelation 16, because there are a lot of things that have to come before that.
So back to our text, let's see. The number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. So again, John is going into a description of what he's seeing, and he's using a lot of figurative language, a lot of similes specifically. Um, This time he's describing the horses of this army that are led by those four angels who were just released. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and their mouths out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now it's also possible that this is some sort of weapon system, uh, but it's also possible that it's just plain supernatural. So I won't dismiss either of those viewpoints, but be aware that that could be the case. And another third of mankind was killed by this army. Now, verses 20 and 21 astound, but not surprise me. It's amazing that people can be so hard-headed to have all of these things fall upon them to know where these plagues are coming from and still not repent. Earlier on in Revelation, it said that the men hid in caves and clefts And they cried out, asking the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. They knew where all of this is coming from, and still they are stubborn enough not to repent. Verse 20 says, But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So the first issue that's mentioned specifically here is idolatry. These people are steeped in their idolatry. And though all of these things are shaking them, these tormenting locusts, this third of the population being wiped out, these men are remaining so stubborn that they will not repent of their evil deeds. They will not stop worshiping the idols that they've created. Now, there are four categories of offenses listed in verse 21. And this is concerning because we can clearly point to each of these offenses and see them being played out in our country today. Murder, sorceries, sexual immorality, and theft. Murder. We have actually subsidized murder. And the ancients would sacrifice their infants in fire. They would place them on a burning statue of Molech. 
but we don't even wait until they're born. Sorceries, in the Greek, the word is pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. It's the use of drugs. And these drugs open you up to a different experience from a different realm. The amount of money spent on drugs in this country is staggering. And not just on illegal drugs, but also legal drugs. Sexual immorality. Now, our culture is obsessed with all things sex. And you can't even go to the gym and get on the treadmill and be watching their TV without some kind of image or video that just a handful of years ago would have been considered illicit. You can't even go into public without encountering something like this. It's everywhere. And theft. You know, the worst kind of theft isn't individual, but institutional. Institutional theft runs rampant. And Chuck Missler said something that I thought was really good. He said, socialism is the plundering of the productive by the unaccountable. Interesting. I think the only reason why America has not been judged yet is because our treatment of Israel. We have kept a foreign policy that keeps us allies with Israel. And I think that that is why God is forestalling judgment on our nation. You know, Billy Graham said, if God fails to judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's true. I mean, we have, I think, almost met the atrocities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our nation certainly needs our prayers. So we've come through chapter 9 of Revelation, and I have a feeling that I know exactly what you're thinking. What in the world did I just listen to? What did I just read? No, this is some crazy stuff. Is God really sadistic enough to force men to stay alive while these locust demons are tormenting them? Is that really what we're seeing here? But I want you to consider the alternative. God is extending grace to these men. Consider that. How is that possible? What is the alternative of not being able to die? To dying. These men do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. They are not saved. If they died during this torment, it would last forever. But God keeps them alive. And he keeps them in the state where they can turn to him for five months. It's a trial period, if you will, of eternal punishment. It only lasts for five months, but you get a taste of it. And he still is willing to let these men turn to him. He's sparing these guys from what they would bring on themselves by the rejection of his son 
and death, he is keeping them out of the eternal fire longer. He's giving them another chance. And that's what we see all throughout the tribulation. It culminates in an angel being sent out to preach the gospel to every man still alive in their own native tongue. God employs his messenger to get the word out at the very end. One last chance until everything's wrapped up. And in his grace, he's trying to shake them enough to finally cry out to him. And in his sovereignty and in his power, he is controlling every aspect of these creatures that he sends to shake them. He is in control. Every authority that they have was given to them by God Almighty. And these creatures, no matter how scary they seem to us, they have no authority that they were not given by Almighty God. He is in control. And look, he's prepared these four angels to be released at a specific hour in the future. And they're not getting out a minute before that. He's the one that told the locusts not to eat the vegetation, but to torment men. He's the one that limits their time of torment to five months. And he's the one that has the power to save these men from eternal suffering if they would just swallow their pride and turn to him. He's the one that holds everything in his hand. He's the one that can give them life everlasting to show them love like they haven't experienced before. He's the one. But they're stubborn. And after these plagues, they refuse to repent of their wicked works. And they will have to answer for that. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. And although this is some creepy stuff, I am so comforted by the fact that he holds the world in his hand. And look, there's nothing that gets to you that doesn't go through him. Everything that we have happening to us and around us is to make us more like Christ. It's a tool. And God uses suffering in this world to refine us. It can either make you bitter or it can make you better. Those are really the only two choices because it will change you. Make sure that you are bending to God's angle. Let him be the ruler. Let him have his perfect work in you. Though it's uncomfortable, and I know that it is, let him have his work in you. Nothing gets to you that doesn't go through him. He's in control. 
Let's wrap up our study this morning with a word of prayer.